We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, this morning I would like to examine with you two pictures suggested by our Old Testament reading from the prophet Malachi. To do this, we're going to go back and start with the book of Judges and the part of the Samson cycle. In Judges 15, Samson returns to his in-laws at the time of the wheat harvest to visit his wife. He comes with gifts, looking forward to a warm reception. Instead, he finds that his father-in-law has given his bride away to a companion. His father says, I really thought you utterly hated her. Samson was incensed. No, he won't take her sister in exchange. Instead, we read, Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as to the olive orchards. Now, have you ever seen a prairie fire race across a dry field or closer to home, looked at the old pictures of the Tillamook burn, the image of scorched fields and hillsides of blackened, limbless trees call to mind the opening verse from our reading in Malachi. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Now, who were the arrogant and evildoers in the days of Malachi? In the four short chapters of this book, we hear of at least three areas of sinfulness festering amid God's people. The first and most glaring being their corruption of worship. Even though the second temple had been completed at the prompting of Haggai and Zechariah, things were not right in the house of the Lord. We read earlier in Malachi, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil, God asks? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Of course not. Yet that is what you offer to your God. And later in Malachi, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Blemished also had become the marriage bed, or perhaps better yet, forsaken. In chapter 2, we read, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she has been your companion and wife by covenant. We hear about the spirit-filled union that God made, yet these ones have disdained their brides, covering their garments with violence. And finally, Yahweh raises the question of the nation's corrupt business practices. God's prophet thunders against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. 
as if that is not enough. They even cheated the Lord by withholding their tithes, seeking to rob God himself. Because of this, God threatens a scorched earth policy against the arrogant and evildoers. It is an uncomfortable picture for us as well. Many of God's words through Malachi ring true for us today. Much of Christian worship in our land has turned in on itself. Worship is seeker-oriented, appealing to the felt needs of those who gather. Oh yes, we raise a clamor of questions and petitions, giving the appearance of praising God. But it's all about me, my praise, not his glory. We have become confused. The initial, the primary direction of our worship is not me to God, but God to me. Luis Palau offers a great example of this, writing about a wealthy European family that elected to have their child baptized in their enormous mansion. Dozens of guests were invited to this elaborate affair, and they all arrived dressed to the nines. After depositing their elegant wraps on the bed in a room upstairs, they were lavishly entertained. Soon, the time for the main event arrived, the infant's baptismal ceremony. But where was the baby? No one seemed to know. The child's governess ran upstairs and returned with a desperate look on her face. Everyone searched frantically for the baby. Then someone remembered he had seen the child asleep on one of the beds. The baby was on a bed all right, buried beneath a pile of coats, jackets, and furs. The object of that day's celebration had been forgotten, neglected, and nearly smothered. Now is our culture today abandoning the wife of our youth like the people of Malachi's day? Yes and no. Divorce statistics are improving. We have finally dropped below the 50% mark. But that's a qualified improvement because fewer and fewer people are choosing to get married. Another symptom of our age is the new mathematics of relationship. In the garden, God created marriage with an odd algebra, one plus one equals one. A divine principle that Jesus reiterates in Matthew 19, where he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But today, one plus one equals cohabitation that is easily divisible by any whim. Now, worship and marriage may be in disarray in our culture, but not business. The numbers are strong even in the face of ongoing trade wars. But increasingly, we see that business for profit has difficulty defining the line between what is reasonable and what is oppressive. We fail to understand that this, too, is a God-given vocation that business functions as what Luther calls the mask of God, his rather curious phrase for God's delivery system to provide our first article gifts, clothing and shoes, house and home, and so forth. 
When we forget this, Jesus' parable of the rich landowner calls us back when he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And it's not just out there in the wider society, whether churched or unchurched. These problems are also in here. Here at Redeemer, we too also get the direction of worship upside down, worrying about whether I got what I came for out of the divine service instead of letting the Spirit have his way and feeding us by his wisdom. And divorce, yes, we carry the scars of these disruptions in God's will. Questionable finances, yes, this temptation as well has borne fruit among us. Sin is a sickness that evidences itself in a never-ending variety of symptoms. Yet, despite the variety, its end is always the same. Sin is a systemic sickness unto death, eternal death. We confessed our sins earlier this morning. We need to own that confession, not with lip service, but with heart-rending worship. Take to heart the closing curse of our text from the last words of the Old Testament, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. But sandwiched between the scorched field of verse 1 and the ban of verse 6 is a second picture. Verse 2, we read, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This, work, or this verse evoked an image in Pastor Beck's mind as he was writing this sermon of his mother's home, which resides behind Liberty Elementary School. A large playground separates her house from the school. You can be in any room of the house and know exactly when recess begins. The squeals of joy, the shouts of games, the creak of swings, and the swoosh of slides all announce the arrival of liberty. The joy of youthful health stands in sharp contrast to the burnt-over stubble of verse 1. All of this joy comes, the prophet declares, with the rising of the sun of righteousness. Now our ESV translation, which is in our bulletins this morning, did not capitalize the phrase, the sun, but the king's English did. How many of you didn't immediately make the inference between sun, S-U-N, and sun, S-O-N? Especially if you weren't following along on the printed page, the pun is inescapable. Doc Rousseau is bold enough to assert that the pun is not reader-inferred, but spirit-inspired. And as the sun is energy and warmth, so Jesus is righteousness and purity. But also, as the sun gives warmth and not just light, so also Jesus gives his righteousness the 100% pure righteousness of the Son of God, one on the cross, declared from the open tomb. The righteousness, this righteousness was given to you in the water and word of your baptism. You are redeemed.
It is given to you also this morning in the bread and the wine, his body and blood for your healing. The sin sickness of our mortal life cured by the medicine of immortality. Jesus comes with healing in his wings. His arms once outstretched on the cross encircle and enfold you today and for all eternity. You are healed. And who are these leaping calves and chattering children racing? The baptized? Yes. The redeemed? Yes. But in the words of Yahweh, they are those who fear my name. This is the language of our catechism, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And as we teach our catechumens, there are two fears here, two mountains. The first we hear about in verse 4 of our text, which reads, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, an alternative name for Horeb is Mount Sinai, and this signifies a desolate region. Here, the people of Israel experience abject physical terror, where we read in Exodus 19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Later, Israel would plead with Moses, you speak lest we die. God's righteous judgment against sin is terrible to behold. This is the first fear. The just verdict against sin is death, which Paul reminds us in Romans 6. It was graphically displayed in the wilderness at the time when Korah and Datham and Abiram rebelled, and the earth opened up and swallowed them and their entire households. This is the first fear, the fear of Horeb. The second is Golgotha, more of a hill than a mountain, but here we see, we sense, we experience the second fear, the fear of those silenced with awe in the presence of God's intervention into the life of man. Noah, silenced before the altar as the rainbow appears for the first time. Abraham, silenced at Mount Moriah as the angel stayed his hand and provided a ram. Isaiah, in the temple as the doorsteps shake with the cry of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. Mary, in the presence of Gabriel, and Zechariah as well, literally silenced. The disciples on the Sea of Galilee, silenced along with the wind and waves. They say to themselves, who then is this? All creation, silenced at Golgotha as the sun withheld its light and the tombs broke open. Ah, in the presence of God. We, you and I, are those who fear the name of Yahweh. Our sin, our sin sickness prompts the fear of Horeb. 
our Savior elicits the fear of Golgotha, and into our silence he speaks, you are healed. Being fear-filled prompts a third scene, a third picture suggested by verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Now this morning, I'm looking at two photographs of the Tillamook burn. The first shows three men walking through the burnt-out hillside, inspecting it, ashes underfoot. It reminds me of our gospel reading from this morning, which reads in part, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity, because the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The second photograph here captures a different hillside. It too is covered with blackened timber, but in the foreground is a steam donkey. It's fired up with smoke rising into the sky, and behind it, freshly laid rails run to a large tree being readied as a spar tree. The entire hillside is an incredible harvest to be gathered. Our son of righteousness has risen. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has endured the scorched earth of the first picture on our behalf. We need not fear his second coming. Instead, we leap like calves from the stall, the second picture. We run like children in the playground, having been healed. But an opportunity still awaits us. A third picture, the second photograph. There is an incredible harvest of souls to be gathered as long as time remains. Christ came with healing. Again, amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.